Well, it is my honor this morning to ask you to turn to the book of Leviticus. As we continue our study in this wonderful book, we will be in chapter 19 this morning, doing this entire chapter, a wonderful and encouraging time, I trust, in God's Word as He speaks to our hearts. You'll find that on page 97 in the Pew Bible in front of you, and I would like to, as I frequently do, encourage you to have God's Word open this morning. We're going to be looking at all 37 of these verses, 36 of these verses, and, and we're going to be, have to jump around a little bit in the book of Leviticus, and I think it will help you to stay engaged in the sermon if you have God's Word that you can refer to throughout our time together. And so here we are in Leviticus chapter 19 and verse 1. Hear now the Word of God. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel and say to them, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. Every one of you shall revere his mother and his father, and you shall keep my Sabbaths. I am the Lord your God. Do not turn to idols or make for yourself any gods of cast metal. I am the Lord your God. Our Father in heaven, we're thankful for your word. We trust that you would, in your kindness to us, and by your spirit, speak into our hearts this morning and into our minds. I'm reminded of the Lord Jesus who prayed on the eve of his crucifixion, Father, sanctify them in truth, for your word is truth. We echo the prayers of our Lord this morning. And ask by your grace that you would make us into a holy people. You would sanctify us through your word. And so help us here this morning with receptive hearts and understanding minds. That we might find our joy in your truth. That your commandments to us would be sweet like honey. And rejoice our heart like much gold. Do this work of grace in us, even now, for our gain and for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. It was in the year 1517, October 1517, in fact, October 31st, 1517, it would be the 500th anniversary just this couple months, when God changed the world uh, through a man, German monk, by the name of Martin Luther. Martin Luther began what we now know as the Protestant Reformation, chiefly on the, on, when he rediscovered the theology that salvation is not earned through a series of works or the performance of sacraments, but instead salvation is God's gracious response to faith. He began to teach this. and began to shake the, the very core of Europe. The Roman Catholic Church quickly protested, saying this was the chief protest to Luther's theological reformation, saying if salvation is not on the basis of works, then what motivation will there be for people to be good, for people to obey God? That we need the threat of judgment in order to motivate and compel righteous living. Or to put it another way, if we're saved completely by grace, then sin will abound. 
Luther responded to this accusation. I quote him. Being afraid of judgment will indeed produce a surface level adherence to the law. But beneath that thin veneer of obedience will rush a river of fear, pride, and self-interest. The only way to develop real love for God is to have fear removed. As the Apostle John said, God's great love for us is what produces love for God in us. See what Luther said, no, wait, if, 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 if it's all God's unmerited mercy to sinners, that won't produce sin, and that won't produce this fear-induced obedience. Rather, it will produce a transformed lives of grateful, passionate, joyful obedience to God. And so John Bunyan, the great Baptist author, a hundred years later, would write, if people really see that Christ has removed the fear of punishment from them by taking it onto himself, they won't do whatever they want. They'll do whatever he wants. Of course, these men and many like them have just discovered these truths from studying the Bible. The Lord Jesus taught this time and again. For instance, in John 14 and verse 15, he says, if you love me, Right? You know this, you will obey my commandments. Uh, the Apostle Paul said in R- Romans chapter 12, Therefore, my brothers, in view of God's mercy, present your bodies as living sacrifices to the Lord. Right? This is what the Scripture has taught. God has saved us by His grace, and therefore out of grateful, a response to grace, a grateful, we, uh, a grateful response to what He has done, we live for Him. And it's not simply a New Testament idea, by the way. The book of Leviticus teaches it as well. And so we're, I think, we're week 10 in our study of Leviticus. And just to kind of remind us of where we've been, the the kind of first half of Leviticus is largely on how to approach God. How do we deal with sin? See, God knows His people will fail to keep His law. That's why He gives them sacrifices. He instructs them by His grace as a, on a way to provide atonement or a covering for their sin through the blood of a substitute, chiefly seen on the day of atonement, right? So that's how we deal with sin. And then we get to the second half of Leviticus, and much like a letter that Paul would have written, it's, it's not on how to deal with sin. Now that sin's been dealt with, how do we live a holy life? And it's in the second half of Leviticus, sometimes called the holiness code, that we learn how to treat our neighbors and the immigrants and the poor and the needy. We learn how to farm the land and conduct business and make judgments and maintain purity and, and even how to rest in the Lord. And what, what Leviticus is teaching us, as Scripture teaches over and over again, is that once sin is forgiven by grace, we respond with this passionate submission to God, a joyful obedience to Him. We obey God, not to earn our salvation, but in gratitude because God has given it to us. And Leviticus 19, I think, is just a beautiful passage. I'm so excited to talk to you about this on what a holy life looks like. But before we we learn anything about what we are to do, I want to to consider the reasons why we should live a holy life. Three reasons I I think found in this chapter, some we've already reviewed. Three reasons to be holy. As you note, verse 1. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel and say to them, You shall be holy... For I, the Lord your God, am holy. First reason to be holy, God is holy. He's your God. 
And He's holy God. We've sung about this today. We rejoice in this. It's mentioned 90 times in the book of Leviticus. It's taught throughout the Bible. The angels in Isaiah, they call out to one another, Holy, 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 as our brother Ben reminded us. It is the Lord God Almighty, right? Hannah will, will pray in First Samuel, There is none holy like the Lord. There is none beside you. God would announce to the prophet Hosea, I am God, not a man, the Holy One in your midst. The, the saints in heaven in the book of Revelation will announce, Lord, who will not fear and glorify your name because you alone are holy. Even the Lord Jesus taught us to pray. He said, okay, pray like this. Our Father who is in heaven, let your name be considered holy, right? Hallowed be your name. Your God is holy, Christian. Therefore, you be holy. Second reason to be holy is because it is our mission. See, God intends to create a holy people, a people who are like Him. And, and so when, when you get to this old covenant, this Mosaic covenant, in order to understand anything really in the Mosaic covenant, you have to go back to Exodus 19. And it's there God has redeemed them by His power through the blood of a pastor over lamb from their bondage. And He takes them out to the wilderness and they come to a mountain. And God says, okay, we need to stop. Because I need to tell you who I am. I need to tell you what I've done. And I need to tell you why I've done it. And he gathers them at the foot of that mountain. And in Exodus 19, verse 4, he, he declares to them, I've redeemed you out of bondage and I've bought you. I've brought you to myself. Why? So that you might be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Right? Your entire kingdom of priests. Just not a, a group of people. That is, you as a, as a kingdom will take me to the other nations. You will be serve as priests to the rest of the world. Well, how can they take the saving knowledge of God to the rest of the nations? By being the holy nation. By being a people distinct and different. A people who, who are like God. See, they've been redeemed for a purpose, for a mission. Just as you and I have been redeemed on a mission. So the reason that we want to be righteous people and holy people is not simply to pat ourselves on the back. It's not to be fill ourselves with some type of self-righteous pride. Right? We want to show the world what God is like. Right? When, we're, when we're interacting with our children, for instance, we want to think, is this, this how God would speak to them? Is this the tone of voice God would use? Am I showing my children what the their Father in Heaven is like by how I interact with them. When we drive our car or in the grocery store or we're at work, the workplace, uh, we want to show other people what God is like. Is this how God would treat them? Is this what God would, would, uh, uh, would talk to them about? That's our mission, to be holy people. In fact, I was, I, I was writing this sermon a couple weeks ago and I, I took a break for lunch and I drove over to Subway and I pulled into the, to the parking lot in Subway and in alongside me, drove, pulled in one of those massive, large family vans, okay? You know what I'm talking about? And they opened the door. I know what I'm talking about. And they opened the door. It wasn't my family, by the way. And they, um, they opened the door, and kids just started spilling out of this thing. And normally, I'm a kind of open-the-door-after-you kind of guy. But I, I by experience, know it's going to be hours through this family. Get to the line. And so I made a beeline for that door, opened it, ran in, and kind of closed it behind me, right? And, and I, had just, I was just working on this sermon on be like God. And 
And I'm standing there in line, and, and all this family comes in. And I, I, honestly, God convicted me. He says, are you in just this simple, everyday, are you thinking about yourself? What do you want? you clamoring and grasping for your own convenience? Or are you treating others like I treat them? See, God's created us in His image. And that image has been marred by our sin. And God comes and redeems us. And He gives us the law in order that we might restore that image in us, that reflection of who God is. We might show His love and His, his self-forgetfulness and His justice and His kindness. It's why God has created you to reflect Him. It's why He's redeemed you to reflect Him. That's our mission as it was Israel's mission. Peter says, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also shall be holy, since it is written, and he quotes Leviticus, you shall be holy, for I am holy. By the way, this is not just for us as individuals, though it applies to us. I don't want you to think as we work our way through Leviticus 19, okay, how does this apply just to me, to me, to me? This is part, it certainly does apply to you, but it part applies to us. We are a, a covenant people gathered together into God's church. In particular, we are gathered together as a people called Hamilton Baptist Church. And we are to let the world know what, what God is like by how we interact with one another. Our Lord has taught us this, did he not? He says, by this all men will know you are my disciples. By, by your prayer life, that's not what he said. By how much scripture you memorize, that's not what he said. He said, by this all men will know you are like me. They'll know you're my disciples by how you love one another. And so we need to understand that when Christians gather together, we're kind to each other and we're generous and we're forgiving and we're patient and we're encouraging and we're loving one another. That God intends for the church, the community of believers to be a corporate witness. This is why I believe so strongly in church membership. And I know we talk about it here. That's why I believe it's important for us to enter into a covenant. To become part of Hamilton Baptist Church. I look forward to teaching through that in the coming weeks in our church membership class. If you want more information, you could sign up for that class. It'll start on September 17th. So we're to be holy because God is holy. Be holy because we have a mission. Third, we're to be holy because God told us so. God is God and you are not. And so do what God says. You see this right here? He, he says, for I, verse 2, for I... The Lord, uh, I, the Lord, your God, am holy. I'm the Lord. I'm God. He's going to mention that 16 times in this passage. You're going to hear 16 times today God saying, I'm the Lord. I'm the Lord. I'm the Lord, your God. In other words, do this. We talked about this last week. Do this because he says so. Parents, you sometimes do that, right? Why, why, you kids ask why, why, why? And finally you say, because I say so. By the way, I think that's an entirely legitimate reason for their obedience. I am fully embraced because I say so. And, and because I say so does not mean I don't have reasons. It means I'm, I'm too exasperated to go over them, right? Or you're too young to understand them. But God has given me authority. I'm the authority over you. I provide for you. I, you live because of me. In some way, I've created you, right? I care for you. And now you obey me because I say so. This is what God is saying over and over and over in Leviticus 19. I'm God. Do what I say because I say so. In fact, look, I think the summary of this whole chapter is found in verse 37. And we kind of get to the end. And notice what God says. And you shall observe all my statutes and all my rules and do them. I am the Lord. 
period. Just in case you forgot who's telling you to do these things, God's telling you to do these things. God says, I made you, I provide for you, I bless you, I've saved you, now do what I say. And that doesn't mean, by the way, it's a grudging obedience, like we're stomping upstairs to reluctantly clean our room. We do so with joyful hearts because God's commands are good. I don't know what you think about when you think about the commands of of God. And this is one of the challenges with preaching the, the law, the preaching Leviticus, is sometimes we think the law is kind of like a bunch of thou shall nots. And certainly they're there, some of those. We think the laws are ridiculous rules or onerous commands. And my hope is that you'll see that the law today is, no, God says, I want you to be kind and I, I want you to be generous. I want you to be good and honest. I want this to impact your family and your place of work and and the government and society. Holiness is not abstract. It impacts every aspect of our lives. In fact, when I outline Leviticus 19, I have identified six themes of what holiness looks like from this chapter. It's certainly more robust than this. But I want to share with you these six kind of uh, themes or six acts of holiness found from Leviticus 19. So consider, secondly, the requirements of holiness. The first being that we are to be faithful. We are faithful. Look in verse 3. Every one of you shall revere his mother and his father and shall keep my Sabbaths. I am the Lord your God. Do not turn to idols or make for yourself any gods of cast metal. I am the Lord your God. God reminds them of the Sabbath, which we'll consider more in the coming weeks. It's a sign of their covenantal relationship with God. God only gave the people of Israel the Sabbath. It was a declaration they belonged to God. So in keeping it, they were being faithful to God. And then he goes on in verse 4 and gives the second commandment, the Sabbath being the fourth. He gives the second commandment there uh, that you're not to make any idols, he says, for them. You're not to be like the pagans who bow down and worship objects of clay and stone and, and wood. The reason, by the way, that God doesn't want his people to make idols, why, why, is, why is Israel alone forbidden from making an idol? Well, because God has already made his image. He put his image all over this earth. And the image is to be you and I. If you will, if I use the term loosely, we are to be God's idol. We are to show the world what God is like. And so God doesn't need a little image here and a little image there and a little image there because he has us. That's the whole point of holiness, that we are to reflect God. And so God says, I want you to be faithful and be committed to me and to me alone. Now look, look over in verse 19, somewhat of a, an obscure verse. It's a little bit difficult to understand, but I think it teaches us that we're to be faithful to the Lord. You shall keep my statutes, he says. You shall not let your cattle breed with a different kind. You shall not sow your field with two kinds of seed, nor shall you wear a garment of cloth made of two kinds of material. Right? So they, no labradoodles for them. Right? No, no polyester. Um, and, and there's all sorts of different ideas as to why this is the case. Um, one, one idea I just want to... Uh, in part to you is that the, the priests would actually wear garments made of two different uh, fabrics. And so it may be that what God is doing is he's distinguishing the laity from the priest who would wear mixed fabrics and the laity could not um, wear those priest-like garments. Um, look in verse 23. When you come into the land and plant any kind of tree for food, then you shall regard its fruit as forbidden. Three years it shall be forbidden to you. It must not be eaten. And in the fourth year, all its fruit shall be holy, an offering of praise to the Lord. But in the fifth year, you may eat of its fruit to increase its yield for you. I am the Lord your God. 
So God says the first harvest, for three years you don't harvest anything, you allow it to mature, and then the first harvest you get on the fourth year, you give it all to me. Right? You respond to my grace for bringing you into this promised land by providing an offering of praise to me. A gracious act saying that you want to give to God. You want to be faithful to Him. And we see even more of this in verse 26. You shall not eat any flesh with the blood in it. You shall not interpret omens or tell fortunes. You shall not round off the hair on your temples or mar the edges of your beard. And all God's people said, You shall not make any cuts on your body for the dead or tattoo yourselves. I am the Lord. Do not, verse 29, do not profane your daughter by making her a prostitute. Lest the land fall into prostitution, land become full of depravity. You shall keep my Sabbaths and reverence my sanctuary. I am the Lord. Verse 31, do not turn to mediums or wizards. Do not seek them out. And so make yourself unclean by them. I am the Lord your God. These are various laws to keep them away from pagan religious practices that surrounded them. Omens. Fortune tellers, mediums, wizards, consulting the dead. God says, you don't do any of that. Why? Because you trust me. I control the future. I am the almighty sovereign God. You trust me and you walk by faith. And I, I would simply like to just encourage you briefly. My, my brothers and sisters in Christ, do not mess around with fortune tellers and astrology and, and, and Ouija boards and, and seances and, and all the rest. God tells us to stay away from these things, not because they're simply silly, but because they're dangerous. I, I believe it's a way to open yourself up. I be, listen, Scripture teaches, and I believe it, that there is a demonic world out there that would do us harm. And I, I don't want to open a window to that. I don't want to open any part of my life to that. Um, and and there are, we have an enemy who wants to steal our devotion from God, and I think God is simply protecting His people. Uh, the, uh, in addition to these fortune tellers around them, the, the, their neighbors would worship their false gods through fertility cults. They would worship gods through um, the act of ritual prostitution. And that's why God says there in, um, that we're not to give our daughters, there verse 29, uh, into prostitution, right? You're not... You're not to practice those type of rituals and that type of worship. And you think, uh, how, I mean, just read that. And it's like, who would do that? Who would sell their daughter into prostitution? Well, certainly their neighbors did it. I'm afraid to tell you it's happening today as well. Like sex trafficking and the sex trade is alive and well. From what I understand, even over in Sterling, and the eastern part of this county, there's, there's a great deal of that happening here in our back door. It is, it is alive and it is well. And God says you're not to use your children that way. Your children are to be treasures to you. And that you and I, as God's people, should pray against these type of acts. We should, we should actively battle against them. And now you, you of course, have noticed, as I noticed, this, the verses 27 28, is various hairstyles and cutting your beard and cutting your bodies and tattooing. That's all was associated with pagan practices. And evidently, the pagans were all clean-shaven. Okay, and um, all God's people uh, were not. And so uh, that, I, from what I understand, is no longer the practice. Okay, you have clean-shaven men who are not pagans. They are God's people. And so these rules no longer apply to us. So if you want, you could shave your face. That's strange, but it's not sinful. Okay, 
Um, they're just trying to say, God said, be faithful to me. My people are faithful to me, he says. My people love me, he says. My people don't mess around and dabble in, in the occult and other religious affairs, he says. They trust me with everything. The second requirement of holiness is to be respectful. Look back in verse 3. Our family was learning this verse the other day as we prepared for this message. Every one of you shall revere his mother and his father. Holiness impacts your home. That authority in the home is God's gift, and we should embrace it and submit to it as the Lord gives it. And so we should honor and revere our parents. Likewise, you see a verse in verse 32 that Pastor Glenn and I were talking about last week. He says, you shall stand up before the gray head and honor the face of an old man. And you shall fear your God. I am the Lord. God says, my people respect the elderly. My people don't cast them aside. They don't marginalize them. They don't idolize youth. My people give honor and respect to where it is due. In fact, his people are, are to be kind, as you see in verse 14. You, sh- you shall, I love this verse, so practical. You shall not curse the deaf or put a stumbling block before the blind. You shall fear your God, I am the Lord. You see, he says, if you're to follow God, you're, you're to care for those who are easy to abuse. Right? You're, you're not to exploit the vulnerable. In particular, the disabled. God says, in my kingdom, the deaf trust other people that they're not being cursed. And the blind trust that they will not trip them. And why? He says, because you fear me. There's, a, there's an awe for me. There's a reverence for me. You might think, well, who will know if I curse the deaf? Certainly the deaf won't. Who will know if I trip the blind? Certainly the blind won't know it's me. God says, I'll know. And you shall fear me, he says. In fact, he even says, your God, there in verse 14, will know. He says, my people, can you imagine this? My people, he says, are respectful. My people revere their parents as children and adults. They honor the elderly. They're kind to the disabled. They have integrity when no one's watching. Can you imagine such a people? Third, he says, my people are generous. Look at verse 5. When you offer a sacrifice of peace offering to the Lord, you shall offer it so that you may be accepted. It shall be eaten the same day you offer it on the day or on the day after. And anything left over until the third day shall be burned up with fire. If it is eaten at all on the third day, it is tainted. It will not be accepted. And everyone who eats it shall bear his iniquity because he has profaned what is holy to the Lord. And that person shall be cut off from his people. I put this under the title of generous because you remember what the peace offering was. I think he kind of explains it there. Sometimes it's called the fellowship offering. And a peace offering was you bring this animal to a cow, for instance, to the temple or the tabernacle courtyards, and they would, they would take some of the meat and give that to God, and then they would take some of it and give it to the priest, but the rest of the animal was left for you to eat. Right? So this is how you would eat meat back in this day. So you would eat this cow. But God stipulates, he says, if you eat it, you have to eat it within a day or two. Now my question is, as we talk, when we talked about the, this offering, how do you eat a cow in a day? Right? You do so with a lot of help. This would be a, a massive feast. You invite their friends. You would invite the poor. You would invite your community there to come rejoice in what you have given to the Lord. And, and God would symbolically eat with you and the priests would eat with you. And then you would gather together with a community of people and they, they would um, rejoice in this generosity that you would share with your neighbors. 
And we see more of this in verse 10. In particular, your poor neighbors. When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge. Neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. And you shall not strip your vineyard bare. Neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. As in our study of Leviticus, I've seen this a recurring theme. Care for the poor. Care for the poor. And here we, in many ways, see the Old Testament welfare system. That God's people were to have compassion on those who did not. And so they would go and work their fields. Now remember, when they would be brought in the promised land, virtually everyone other than the priests would be farmers. It's a whole nation of farmers. Farmers and shepherds and people keeping animals and vineyards and so forth. And God says, go, you go work your field in a way that the nations watch and think that's strange. Because God says, you don't completely harvest your land. You don't strip your vineyard bare. You don't go back over and see what you've missed. You leave some of your crop for the poor to come and to collect for themselves. God says, my people put the poor before their profit. My people lower their standard of living in order to care for others. God says, I'll take care of you. It's my land. Do what I say. I'll provide for your needs. You give to the poor and I'll make sure you have enough. We learn this in the New Testament, 2 Corinthians chapter 9. Paul says, you will be enriched in every way in order to be generous in every way. God blesses so that we can bless others. And by the way, you notice that the poor have to work for it. I find this particularly interesting. I don't work in public policy, but I, I find this interesting that they don't get a check at the beginning of the month. Right? You want to eat, you go out and you collect it. Remember Ruth? She catches Boaz's eye as she's gleaning the fields. And Boaz doesn't say, well, she doesn't need to do that anymore. Just bring her in. We'll give her some. No, he says, let her keep gleaning. We'll leave a little bit more for her. But I want to see if she's going to work for it. And this was God's intention. God's people are generous. Are, are you generous to the poor? Are you holy like God in this way? A holy life means you're willing to lower your standard of living in order to be a blessing to others, in order to be generous to other people. In fact, we see something similar in verse 33. The Bible says here, our Lord teaches us, when a stranger sojourns with you in your land, you shall do him no wrong. Some translations put a foreigner or an alien. Verse 34, you shall treat the stranger or the foreigner who sojourns with you as the native among you. You shall love him as yourself. For you were strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. God says, you don't mistreat the aliens, the immigrants in your country. He says, Israel, you know, you know what it's like to be a foreigner. Israel, you, you lived in Egypt. You were the immigrant. And, and now, now that you are getting this land, when immigrants come into your land, you show those immigrants the same love with, with which you wish you received when you were the immigrant in Egypt. What God is teaching is that those who receive God's love should be the quickest to extend it to other people. In, in fact, I think it's particularly interesting. Verse 34, he says, you should treat the immigrant, the foreigner, the sojourner as the native. Right? Treat the immigrant like he was a native among you. In other words, you treat them like they belong. Now, I know immigration in America is a thorny issue. And I'm probably going to get myself in trouble. Okay? But that's okay. Um, it, I don't... I don't work for the government. I was going to say most of you don't, but probably most of you do. Um, right? <laughs> most of you don't work for immigration. Let me put it that way. 
Not a lot of ICE officers here. I would encourage you to let the government do what it must. And, 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 and some of you have very strong opinions on this. I have strong opinions on this. That our opinions might not agree, by the way. But the government passed the laws, build a wall, kick them out, let them stay. Let the government do that. That's not my job. My job, and I believe your job as a Christian, according to this passage, is to treat the immigrant in our land as if they belonged here. And to be perfectly honest, I don't care if they jumped a wall, swam a trench, rode a train, or waited in line. That's not my issue. There may be arguments for that. There may be political arguments for that. Fine. I'm not, it's not a political speech. I'm not running for office, nor shall I ever, God willing. Right? This is the Bible. God says, the immigrant in your land, you treat him like he belongs. That's what my people do. And if you have trouble with that, you take it up with our Father in heaven. Love him as yourself. I'm not saying you can't have political ideas on this, but make sure your commitment, first of all, is not to your party, but to your God. God, God says, my people are happy to be with less. My people are generous. They'll be with less. Make sure the poor are cared for. They're welcoming and generous with their lives. Fourth, he says, my people are honest. Look in verse 11. You shall not steal. You shall not deal falsely. You shall not lie to one another. Verse 12. You shall not swear by my name falsely and so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. We're to be truth-telling people. We don't lie. We don't use God's name in order to get ahead. We we, we don't take what belongs to other people. We do this in our personal relationships. We do this in business. In fact, you look over in verse 35. God tells them how their holiness impacts their, their business. He says, You shall do no wrong in judgment in measures of length or weight or quantity. You shall have just balances, just weights, a just ephah, and a just hand. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. He says, when you're doing business, you don't cheat to make a buck. My people, they pay their debts. They, they're, they're, they're honest in doing business. Doing business with my people, God says, is like doing business with me. You will be treated fairly. You can trust them because you can trust me. In fact, God links it once again to bringing them out of Egypt. He says, listen, you, I brought you out of oppression, not so that you can now in turn oppress other people, but show other people my redeeming love, what I am like, my integrity. I, I, I read recently of a lady who ha- was having friends over for dinner who were coming out of town, and she went to the meat department in the grocery store and wanted to buy a large roast, asked for a large roast, and the, the butcher had one roast left in his freezer and he went and got it and he brought it out and weighed it in front of her and, and she says, well, she was, she was hoping for a larger roast. And so the butcher actually took the roast instead of explaining, well, this is the only one I have. He actually took it and he went back to the freezer and he, and he put that roast into the freezer and then took it back out as if he were taking a different roast out. And, and then he brought it back to the scale and he weighed it, but he put his thumb on the scale just a little bit just to make it seem a little bit heavier. At this, the woman says, great, I'll take both of them. God says, my people are honest. My people don't lie. My people don't deceive. My people keep their word. My people pay their debts. Can you imagine such a people? Fifth, God says, my people are just. Note verse 13. You shall not oppress your neighbor or rob, excuse me. Yeah, verse, verse 13. You shall not oppress 
your neighbor or rob him. The wages of a hired servant shall not remain with you all night until the morning. He says you don't take advantage of the day laborer. You don't delay the payment. Verse 15 In the court of law, he says, you shall do no injustice in the court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great. But in righteousness, you shall judge your neighbor. You shall not go around as a slanderer among your people. And you shall not stand up against the life of your neighbor. I am the Lord. God says, you're forbidden from showing partiality. Justice is blind amongst God's kingdom. It's blind to people's status. It's blind to their wealth. It's blind to their relationships. You might be tempted to show partiality to rich, to curry favor, right? You might be sh- tempted to show partiality to the poor, to stick it to the rich. God says, you don't do either, right? You be, you're like me and you do what is right. You don't slander. You don't push along a juicy bit of information about someone. You, you don't falsely accuse in, individuals. There's justice in my land. We see this, I think, in verse 20 as well. If a man lies sexually with a woman who is a slave, we were going to talk about slavery in a couple of weeks in our study of Leviticus, Assigned to another man and not yet ransomed or given her freedom, a distinction shall be made. They shall not be put to death because she was not free. That is, she, when he says they won't be put to death, she wasn't free. What are they saying? She's not married to another person. She hasn't been freed from slavery and married, so it's not adultery because she's not married, and therefore they won't. It's not the death penalty, um, for, which would be for adultery. Verse twenty-one. But he shall bring his compensation to the Lord to the entrance of the tent of meeting, a ram for a guilt offering, and the priest shall make atonement for him with the ram of the guilt offering before the Lord for the sin he has committed and he shall be forgiven for the sin he has committed. There's a great deal of debate on this passage um, but it's the idea here that this man who has now slept with this woman has, has now ruined her prospects to become married to another individual and so most commentators, from what I understand, think this, woman, this man now has to not only atone for his sin but must marry, marry her and to care for her, must protect her now. And God says, my people don't show favoritism. They don't take advantage. They're, they're respectful. They're generous. They're compassionate. They're honest. They're just. And lastly, you'll see that God says, my people are loving. This is verse 17 and 18. You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. You know, God's not simply after external obedience, right? He wants the heart as well. He says, you don't hate your brother in your heart. Maybe you talk to him frankly, he says. You have a frank conversation, but you don't take vengeance. You don't let his sin lead you into sin. Instead, what do you do? You love him, verse 18. My people love, my people love their neighbor. And I think this right here, verse 18, is is the heart of all of God's holiness code. I think that the reason for all of these laws in which we consider now, 37 verses, right? Don't steal, don't trip, treat fairly, give to the poor, rise for the elderly, pay your debts. Why do we do all these things? Because it's because you love your neighbor. In other words, these are not just rules to keep or sins to avoid. It's a, it's a way to, to understand how we love each other. This is the role of God's law. I don't know if you, you probably don't think about God's law this way. The role of God's law is to teach us how to love. The love of God and the law of God, they go together. Because the law of God reflects the perfect loving character of God. And that we have this powerful and glorious and mighty God. But he is no tyrant to fear. He is good and kind and loving. And he says, so shall we be. We shall love our neighbor as 
ourselves. Love your neighbor as yourself. Now, sometimes I hear when people mention this, they say, well, okay, if you love your neighbor as yourself, you first have to learn to love yourself. And I would just simply like to be clear, that is utter nonsense. That is not what Scripture is teaching. In fact, you look at all these commands, there is not a single command that says, God says, hey, by the way, be good to yourself. You know, take care of yourself. The Lord doesn't speak about this in any way here. All right? there's, there's not a single command. The entire law is about giving ourselves to others. In fact, we don't need to be told to love ourselves because I think we're already pretty committed to it. Right? We may be bad at it at times, but we are committed. We, we're instead to treat our neighbors as we would like to be treated. We, we treat others as ourselves. So how patient do you want people to be with you? You be that patient with others. Or, or do you like to receive the benefit of the doubt? Well, then you give that to others, God says. When you sin, do you like to receive mercy? Well, then you do that to others. See, when we love our neighbor as ourselves, it's, it's an action. It's not a vague sentiment. It's, it's service. God's teaching us love impacts the words we use and the weights we use. It impacts whether we slander or steal. It impacts if we're kind and considerate. Love is seen. Love is experienced. And this truth, Leviticus 19.18, is is so important that it is quoted seven different times in the New Testament. James calls it the royal law. Paul, in in writing to the Galatian church and the Roman church, he says, all the law of God is summed up in this. Love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus quotes Leviticus 19, 18, more than any other verse. Four times, he says we are to love our neighbor as ourselves. In other words, if we're to reflect God's character, we need to reflect his love. This is the heart of holiness. And I want to, just as we end our time together, to think about what Jesus has to teach of us on the heart of holiness. I mentioned he talks about it four different times. I want to consider two of those passages as we end this morning. Get Jesus' understanding or Jesus' sermon on Leviticus 19.18 and see how it applies to our life. So I want to invite you to turn to the Gospel of Matthew and we're going to be in verse 22. And then after that, we'll be in Luke chapter 10. What does our Lord have to say about this verse, Leviticus 19.18? Love your neighbor as yourself. And so Matthew 22, verse 35, parallel passage to what Mark read for us this morning in our scripture reading. Jesus is encountering a Pharisee, in particular a lawyer. You see this in verse 35, Matthew 22, and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Now, it's interesting to me that this man, this lawyer, asked Jesus, what is, do you see what his question is? What is the great commandment? Jesus quotes the most famous verse in all the Old Testament called the Shema from Deuteronomy 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Now, Jew would quote that verse every day. They'd be very, very familiar with this. Jesus says, okay, that's the great commandment. But he doesn't stop there. He says, oh, there's a second. And he finds this obscure verse in a long list of commands in Leviticus 19. 
Right? So he's asked for one commandment, and instead he, he doesn't stop. He gives two. And in fact, he even says the second is like it. It's almost as if Jesus is reluctant to talk about loving God without encouraging us at the same time to love others. And I think the reason why is he knows this man's heart, and maybe he knows our heart as well, Hamilton Baptist Church, that it might be very easy for us to love God and be stirred up with affection towards God, and at the same time, easy for us not to love others who are, let's just say, less lovable. That would be easy for us to do. And and we could come to church and you could be moved by a hymn or a prayer or maybe even a sermon. You could engage your heart with God. And then you can leave this building and have no love towards the people around you. Maybe even the people in your car, in your home. It is uh, Pastor Mark Dever says, if you're moved in worship and yet not moved to love others, it's like being in the locker room celebration without ever playing the game. It's, it's a spiritual schizophrenia. I, I'm moved to love God, and yet at the same time completely unmoved to love those around me. And now maybe you, you say, okay, well, I already know this. I, I mean, I know, I know love your neighbor as yourself. You know, 95% of us can quote that. What's the second great commandment? Love your neighbor as yourself. But please understand, knowing it is not the same thing as doing it. Right? You, you can know it and, and, and not follow it. And to do so would be like being sick and you go to the doctor and he gives you a prescription and you come home and you study the prescription. Right? And you memorize the prescription. And I understand the prescription, but that's not the point of the prescription. The point is to get you actually to act in some way to go out and do. We might have knowledge of the Bible, and I think Hamilton Baptist would do pretty well here. We know the Bible, but knowing the Bible is no substitute for doing the Bible. And God calls us to love others as ourselves. How are you doing? So, well, how do I do that? Well, I would, I, Leviticus 19 is a good place to start. There's, there's a whole list of things to do to begin to act in love for your neighbor. And by the way, when we love our neighbor, we're not just loving others. We're loving others who we might not want to love, which is what Jesus teaches us in Luke chapter 10. So turn over there. Luke 10 is the, as you know, um, it's the parable of the Good Samaritan. And once again, Jesus is having a conversation with a lawyer. Okay? Seems to me the lawyers are never the good guys in the Bible. Okay? Alright? Amen? Okay. Uh, present company excluded, of course. And behold, a lawyer stood up, verse 25, to test him, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? Right? You're a lawyer. Tell me. How, how do you read it? He answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Okay? So he got the commandments down. And, and Jesus says, okay, now, now you know it. What do you do? You go do it. He says, do this and you live. Well, that raises the problem. He wants to know who's my neighbor. He wants to reduce to the smallest amount of people those whom he's obligated to love. So Jesus, I want to love my neighbor, but I need to find out who my neighbor is. Jesus goes on and tells him a story pitting two mortal enemies together. Right? And the Good Samaritan comes along and helps the Jew who's... I mean, right, the priest passes him by, the Levite. They both know the law, just like this lawyer, and do not do it. The Samaritan who probably has no knowledge of the law, and yet he obeys it. 
he loves his neighbor. And what God is saying is my people love differently. When you meet a Christian, you are loved differently. We show the world what God is like. We reflect his holiness through our love. In, in the nat- ancient Near East, the nations around Israel, along the major trade routes, if you would cross their border, there would be a statue of the king. And you would cross the border and you would see the statue and you would say, okay, I'm in that guy's kingdom. I've now entered his kingdom. Right? Now, God, God doesn't set up statues, but he does use his image. And it's you and I. And he places us in our family and in our workplace and on the roads and in the market. And people are to say, okay, notice something. I see this reflection in us that we represent another king. We're not clamoring after money and willing to climb over people to get it. We're, we're not yelling about this or that all the time. We, we have a character of another king. We're patient and we're honest. We're kind and generous. We have mercy to the sinners and, and compassion to the weak. We love people. So when people come in contact with you, Christian, follower of King Jesus, do they, are they interacting with someone who is like God? That is our calling. Be holy, for the Lord your God is holy. And to be perfectly honest, I think about this, and <laughs> I feel pretty terrible. Because I can't even get through a subway line, right? Acting like God. How in the world are we going to do this? I mean, it's just kind of, we're going to go be, okay, we're going to try real hard? We're going to double down? How long is that going to last? That get you through this afternoon? Maybe tomorrow? And by the way, just to further discourage you, Jesus commands in John 15, he says, that my command is this. You've heard that command in Leviticus. My command is this. Love each other as Yourself? No, he says, love each other as I have loved you. And if you have any knowledge of your heart whatsoever, you know how far you fail to do that over and over again. And my brothers and sisters, this is why the love of Jesus is so life-changing. Because even though you fail all the time, he loves you anyway. And his love for you is not some sentiment. It's not vague. It's costly service. In fact, when Jesus was born, the angel said to Mary, the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. He is the Holy One. He is the One who perfectly reflected the image of God to such a degree that He could say, if you have seen Me, you have seen My Father. Perfect in His holiness, faithful and good and generous and honest, just and loving. And He died for those who are not like you and me in our place, taking the wrath of God upon Himself, rising from the dead. The Bible says God demonstrates His love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And so please understand, you don't become a Christian by becoming loving. You become a Christian by recognizing you are not loving and you need the mercy of God. And you turn to Christ for His Scripture says that if anyone confesses that Jesus is Lord and believes in his heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. You are not saved by your efforts. You're saved by faith in the Lord. My Christian brothers and sisters, do not leave this place just redoubling your efforts to be more holy. Fill your heart with the truth 
of how much God has loved you through Christ and let that propel you forward. That you would recognize it is your greatest joy and unimaginable privilege to show the world how God has treated you by treating them in the same way, by loving others. Let His love propel you. In fact, let's, let's remember His love as we come before this Lord's table. I want to give you a moment of reflection You might prepare your hearts, as Scripture instructs us. And you pray quietly, and then I'll close us in prayer. Let's pray now. Our Father in heaven, in a moment as we hold the bread in our hand and wait for our brothers and sisters to receive it, will you, will you let us hear in our heart, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. And at the same time, will you let the bread remind us that because we fail, Christ has come in an abounding mercy and love and saved us through his broken body and shed blood. And this reminder of his broken body and the reminder of his shed blood found in the cup might truly create in us the desire, the understanding of the great joy and privilege it is to show the world what you're like. Help us through your this supper meal to grow in our holiness as you work in our hearts, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.